Hello, I'm Emma Dwyer, a partner in our Derivatives Instructed Finance team, and I'm joined by Emma Lancelot, a senior lawyer in the same team. Alan and Overy has been running a series of podcasts focusing on the legislative framework the UK government is putting in place to ensure we have a functioning statute book on 30th of March 2019 in the event of a hard or no-deal Brexit. In this podcast, we will discuss what the UK version of the European Markets Infrastructure Regulation, otherwise known as UK EMEA, will look like, and the likely practical effect of the onshoring of EMEA in a hard Brexit scenario. For the purposes of today, we've assumed a basic knowledge of how the UK legislative framework will be onshored from exit day and an understanding of the concept of retained EU law. However, if you need any further information on either of these topics, this is covered in previous podcasts in this Beyond Brexit series available on our webpage. We've also assumed a basic knowledge of EMEA and its key concepts, such as clearing and margin requirements. So let's discuss UK EMEA. As we know, amongst other things, the UK Withdrawal Act converts the existing body of EU law into UK domestic law from exit day. And for the purposes of EMEA, which is an EU regulation, EMEA will be carried across into UK law as retained EU law. We call the regulation as onshored UK EMEA. So UK EMEA post-exit day will look a little different to EMEA as we know it now. Won't it, Emma? It will indeed, yes. And that's because the UK Withdrawal Act gives the UK government the power to correct what are known as deficiencies, which it will do by way of statutory instruments, or as I'll call them, SIs, so that UK law can operate effectively after exit day. Basically, technical changes need to be made to EMEA to ensure it can work. But not policy changes though, right? Correct. The substance should, at least in theory, remain the same, The only changes permitted are technical ones to reflect the fact that the UK has left the EU. So EU member states will be third countries, for example, and references to ESMA and other EU bodies will be replaced with the equivalent UK authorities. Inevitably, though, the nature of Brexit itself, the fact that the UK is actually leaving the EU, will lead to certain substantive changes, which we can talk about a bit later. So do you want to expand a bit on where we will find UK EMEA after exit day? Yes, of course. So, as we know, the EU legislation is comprised of Level 1, the regulation itself, EMEA, Level 2, the associated technical standards, and Level 3, related guidance such as Q&A. And there's a fairly extensive EMEA-ESMA Q&A, as we know. Each of the SIs also amend existing related UK legislation where necessary, such as legislation relating to penalties and enforcement under EMEA to ensure the UK regulators have all the powers needed post-exit day and all deficiencies are addressed. In terms of Level 1, there are three different SIs that are relevant here that amend the Level 1 EMEA regulation. First, what I'm going to call the Central Counterparty or CCP SI, which deals with the recognition of third country CCPs under Article 25 of EMEA, revokes existing equivalence decisions for all third country CCPs, um, including existing decisions, and introduces a transitional regime for the recognition of third country CCPs under EMEA. Now, not all of this is done by way of amending EMEA itself, though. For example, the transitional provisions sit in the standalone CCP SI regulations only. Secondly, there's what I'm going to call the Trade Repository, or TRSI, 
which deals with the registration of trade repositories under UK EMIR and data availability. The TRSI includes transitional provisions relating to advanced and temporary registration, as well as registration conversion of existing UK trade repositories. And again, not all of these provisions will be included in the amended UK EMIR regulation itself, because the transitional provisions sit in the standalone TRSI regulations I referenced earlier. And so the final SI covers everything else? Yes, that's correct. The final SI is what I'm going to call the EMIR SI, which is the main SI amending EMIR, and broadly speaking covers everything else not covered by the CCP and TRSIs. We'll discuss the key consequences of the changes a bit later. To summarise though, the EMIR SI does a number of things that you would expect as the natural consequences of onshoring, and introduces some transitional provisions to assist with the transition to the new regime. That's right. First, it amends definitions and other references in EMEA to refer to the relevant UK or onshored UK legislation as opposed to EU legislation, for example, in the definition of financial counterparty. Yeah, yeah, it sounds straightforward, but there's clearly some mismatch risk here, I would say. Yeah. It, it also transfers functions performed by EU authorities under EMEA to the relevant UK authorities and responsibility for technical standards to the relevant UK regulators. Requirements to cooperate or share information with EU authorities are deleted as they're no longer required. In addition, existing equivalence decisions will be incorporated into UK law other than notably, as we've seen, in the case of equivalence decisions regarding third country CCPs taken under Article 25 of EMEA, which will be remade. That's right. So generally, HM Treasury has been transferred the functions of the European Commission, for example, making equivalence decisions, and the Bank of England, the PRA and the FCA have been transferred the functions of ESMA. Correct. And there's a new power to suspend the reporting obligation. Essentially, the FCA can suspend the reporting obligation when there are no trade repositories available to which reports can be made for up to one year, although that period can be extended. It's currently not possible to suspend the reporting obligation under EMEA, nor is this currently contemplated by the proposed legislative changes to EMEA under the EMEA review. So this will be a difference from EMEA. Yeah, so the UK and EU rules won't be completely aligned. We should probably also say that the MRSI sets out new UK supervision and enforcement provisions relating to trade repositories, and it provides for a separate transitional arrangement for intergroup exemptions from clearing and margin. Yes, it is helpful that the draft MERSI provides a transitional regime for intergroup exemptions involving an entity in the UK and an entity outside of the UK, which will, going forward, include entities in the EU. The regime provides for the exemptions to apply or to continue to apply after exit day until there is an equivalence determination by HM Treasury in respect of a third country in which a non-UK counterparty is established. The intergroup exemption will last for up to three years from exit day and may be further extended. It's worth noting, though, that the transitional provisions sit in the standalone MERSI regulations only and are not part of the amended UK EMEA regulation, so make sure you look in the right place. So, in summary, there are three SIs that amend EMEA itself, plus related UK legislation, as well as certain standalone transitional provisions in the relevant SIs. ANO has a consolidated version of UK EMEA regulation available, reflecting the amendments to the EMEA regulation itself. This accompanies this podcast. 
although you would need to additionally refer to the three SIs and other related UK legislation for the complete picture. That's level one, but you need to look elsewhere for level two technical standards, don't you? There, as we've seen, HMT has delegated powers to the FCA, Bank of England and the PRA to make the necessary changes. That's right. HMT has designated an appropriate regulator or regulators for each of the existing RTS and ITS under EMEA. Consultations on each of the EMEA technical standards are in the process of being finalised and we expect to see the output of that in the coming weeks. And any changes will be enacted by way of what are termed EU exit instruments, so we're starting to get the full view of the UK EMEA landscape. In terms of Level 3 guidance, broadly the expectation is that EU guidance from prior to exit day will continue to apply if relevant, but it will not be redrafted and should be construed sensibly in terms of application post-exit. There's likely some room for uncertainty there, to be honest. Where there is even less certainty, of course, is in relation to the current proposed amendments to EMEA as part of the EMEA refit initiative. Yes, the UK Withdrawal Act says that it is only law that is in force and operative immediately before exit day that will automatically become part of retained EU law and consequently UK law on exit day. This raises the question as to what then happens in respect of EU law that is in force but not yet operative or indeed EU law that is nearly final but not yet in force, so-called in-flight legislation. If EMEA refit is finalised and the provisions apply prior to exit day, which is looking increasingly unlikely, we understand that HMT plans to make amendments to UK legislation to address EMEA refit, although the timing of finalisation would dictate the mechanism used. Separately, the Financial Services Implementation of Legislation Bill specifically contemplates the situation where EMEA refit is not onshored prior to exit day and contemplates in that scenario that the government be given powers to implement EMEA refit for up to two years following exit day. If the changes are not incorporated into UK law, either before or after exit day, this could obviously lead to mismatches as between UK, EMEA and EMEA as amended by EMEA refit. And what about level two technical standards? All EMEA technical standards are in force, of course, but there are some obligations which are not yet applicable, such as initial margin phases four and five and certain clearing obligations, aren't there? Yes, that's right. In respect of the EMEA technical standards, neither initial margin phase four and five start dates nor the start dates for certain clearing obligations for Category 3 and 4 counterparties apply before exit day. In respect of initial margin Phase 4 and 5, the draft onshored technical standards make it clear that these obligations will not automatically become part of UK law on exit day. Although the PRA has indicated in its consultation paper that UK firms should plan on the basis that the IM Phase 4 and 5 will apply. In respect to the start dates for certain clearing obligations for Category 3 and 4 counterparties, the approach in the draft onshore technical standards is unclear in this respect, although it's not clear whether a difference of approach is actually intended. Either way, UK firms should continue to plan on the basis that they will need to comply with these obligations. OK, so we've discussed where to find the new UK legislation onshoring EMEA and broadly what it does. So let's discuss the key practical consequences of the amendments made by the three SIs amending EMEA. First, 
EU entities and financial market infrastructure will become third country entities for the purposes of UK EMEA. And the same will be true in reverse under EMEA, where UK entities and financial market infrastructure will become third country entities. And this is significant because it could impact which obligations apply to the counterparty pairings um, in scope and also how they can satisfy those obligations. Clearly, the first step for a counterparty pairing is to work out their new counterparty classifications under both UK EMEA and EMEA, to the extent one or both may apply, and to analyse whether and how this will impact the particular counterparty pairing. So a change in status could impact which obligations apply, or have a documentation or operational impact, for example. Yes, and as you say, parties will now potentially need to look to two different regimes, UK EMEA and EMEA and ensure they can satisfy both if necessary, which does add an additional layer of complexity. Yes, then parties should look to how they will satisfy any relevant obligations. And this is where the important concepts of recognition and equivalence come in. So taking the clearing obligation as an example, under UK EMEA, the clearing obligation must be satisfied by clearing through a CCP authorised or recognised by the Bank of England. Only UK CCPs can be authorised, all third country CCPs, which post-exit day will additionally include EU27 CCPs, must be recognised. So in respect of the recognition of non-UK CCPs, non-UK CCPs authorised or recognised under EMEA, including those CCPs previously recognised under EMEA, will no longer be authorised or recognised under UK EMEA post-exit day. However, the CCPSI introduces temporary deemed recognition provisions and provisions relating to the recognition of third country CCPs aimed at ensuring the continued provision of clearing services in the UK by non-UK CCPs post-exit day. That's right, but we also have reciprocity issues to consider. The same recognition issue arises in the context of EMEA as regards EU access to UK CCPs post-exit day, as if UK CCPs are not permitted to continue to provide clearing services to EU market participants post-exit day. This could cause significant market disruption. This has been the subject of some debate, but the European Commission has now adopted an implementing decision declaring the legal and supervisory arrangements for CCPs in the UK as equivalent to EMEA, at least for a limited period of time, and thus paving the way for ESMA to recognise UK CCPs in a hard Brexit. It remains to be seen how this will be resolved long term, though. It's also important not to forget clearing mandates in other jurisdictions, which previously would not have contemplated the UK as non-EU, for example, the US. That's right. It's a really key issue to watch, actually. And similar issues arise in the context of trade repositories and trading venues. This is basically because, to satisfy the reporting obligation under UK EMEA, counterparties must report to a trade repository registered or recognised by the FCA with reciprocal issues under EMEA. And in addition, OTC derivatives are defined for UK EMEA purposes as those not traded on regulated markets or third country equivalent markets. And so EU27 markets will need to be third country equivalents for UK EMEA purposes, again with the reciprocal issue arising under EMEA. As you say, there is now more clarity for CCPs but for trade repositories and trading venues, we do have less clarity on whether they will be recognised in time for exit day. And so in terms of practice, firms will need to assess how this may impact them. Yes, that's right. 
Firms need to take a look at their current operations, documentation and practices to determine the impact on existing trades and where changes may need to be made for new deals. Trades with exempt entities and pension scheme arrangements too should be carefully considered. We discuss this in more detail in our bulletin accompanying the podcast. So given the amount of uncertainty in terms of where we may end up with Brexit, do you think we can expect any last-minute relief? HM Treasury has proposed a temporary transitional power for UK regulators which could be used to provide temporary relief from the impact of new or amended regulatory obligations arising as a result of Brexit for up to two years in certain circumstances. Can we rely on that? It's possible that transitional relief could be provided in some areas, but we really can't rely on it. We have no current indication of whether the UK relief will be used in an EMEA context and no indication from the EU27 that last-minute relief would be something they would be willing to provide either. Whilst you would hope and expect that a pragmatic approach will ultimately be taken in the event of a no-deal Brexit, the most prudent advice that can be given at this point is to continue to plan with all eventualities in mind. (laughs) 